0: While we are still recovering from our busy summer of LWML and maybe meeting a lot of you listeners live, hopefully, we're recording this beforehand, by the way, so hopefully by the
1: time this airs, (laughs) we will have met a lot of you. I hope something really (laughs) awful doesn't happen at the conference that just like this becomes irrelevant. It just like blows it out of the water. Like I've accidentally spit heresy or something (laughs) like, and you all fall from grace I'm so... Oh, I don't man. think that's going to happen. I sure but hope not. It we, would, it would be a little fun. Time, time will Hopefully, tell. Time will tell. Hopefully, this age is true. Okay. Very well. <laughs> Very Like a fine wine.
0: So, we're doing Bree's Greatest Hits. We've already heard a couple.
1: What's on for this week? So, today is a My Favorite Story Time with Sarah episode. And it's funny for a lot of reasons but also like it was it's an important it was an important institution in the church so in this episode sarah talks about the history of the walther league Mm. which i had forgotten as i like i re-listened to all the episodes before i came in here to talk about them and i i forgot entirely like how many different other institutions the walther that like spun off from the walther league and i'm i'm not going to spoil it for anybody if you haven't listened to the episode yet but it's interesting that this was an organization that had so much influence in early american lutheranism Mm -hmm. and i'm sad to see it go but I think that there are still ways that a lot of young Lutherans are still sort of organizing and, mm-hmm. you know, influencing maybe that's not the right word. They're out they're still out there like organizing and doing witness and outreach and getting MRS degrees. Like there are other <laughs> ways for that to happen these days so i think the spirit of the walther league lives on even though it's not called that anymore so i also loved learning about the game hide the peanut which (laughs) is something i still need to start doing in my apartment but i'm i'm honestly if i didn't think the dogs would find the peanut before anyone else and eat (laughs) the peanut that's been hidden i would maybe play this It sounds like a fun it (laughs) sounds like a fun game. Yeah. Well, here we go. Here we go. History of the wolf. Go find the peanut.
0: listening to the Lutheran Ladies Lounge podcast. I'm Sarah. I'm Erin. I'm Bree and I'm Rachel. Today is a story time with Sarah Day. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I see you all are just as excited
1: as I am. <laughs> I'm so tired. Sorry. I'm ready to, to like
2: that. sit on the story time rug and just chill and listen yeah, to a good
1: story. It's story. time with Auntie Sarah. Thinking about kayaking down a mountain of mashed potatoes like a gravy (laughs) creek
0: yes full disclosure that we're recording this um, just a few days before thanksgiving so tired (laughs) we're all in special form today so today's story time is a huge part of lutheran culture that you may or may not know about depending on your age bracket this is the history of the walther league today
1: the walther league
0: yes So maybe you know about this. Maybe your parents, your grandparents have talked to you about it. If you are a millennial or younger, you probably don't have any direct experience with this other than your parents or grandparents. Now, the Walter Lake history is way bigger than anything that I can fully cover in one podcast. Mm. We're talking 80 plus years of history here, 75 Mm. years of history. I literally had 15 pages of notes from a 300-page book on the history of the Walter League, and that is like barely scratching the surface. And so this is going to be hopefully an hour or less of that history. So there's way more than what I'm going to be able to tell you. So if you're interested in this, you can check out the book that I read, which is Hopes and Dreams of All the International Walter League and the Lutheran Youth in American Culture, 1893 to 1993. It's a really interesting book. If you're into like cultural history books, if you're in St. Louis, you can go to the seminary library and get the book from there. Otherwise you can find it online. It's really fascinating. I also want to thank Concordia Historical Institute as usual for their help with researching this podcast. Uh, They've kind of become my besties with all of these historical podcasts and Mm. They're really cool people over there. If you ever have historical questions about anything related to the LCMS, just shoot them an email, and they know Mm -hmm. literally everything. Everything. It's fantastic. Also, I shot some emails to uh, Dr. John Science, Barbilo, and Laura Mars, and they kind of gave me some other stuff as well. So I had a lot of help with researching this podcast. It was super fun. I got in way too deep, as the three of you can well attest to.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Come back to us, Sarah.
2: Yeah, it was it was a little rough there. Um not almost- do things halfway, guys. <laughs> no. Never. Especially, never. Especially
0: history and culture. Everybody over a certain age probably has some story about the Walter League as well. So if you want some personal stories, go find some people in your congregation or your family and ask them about their Walter League experiences. They probably have some... My mom had stories about the Walter League. Most of them will likely have something to do with marriage. Kind of a joke, but not really. So... Hey. So first, I gotta set the scene a little bit, and this is this is a, a, a brief overview of, you know, all of American history in the late eighteen hundreds. <laughs> the mid to late eighteen hundreds in American history was this time of societies. There was literally a society for Everything. And this is when the YMCA started in the U.S. and in Britain. The American Bible Society, the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Oh yeah. Uh, if you had if you had something to gather around, an issue to gather around, there was going to be a society for you to join. This was hmm. just kind of the way things were. It's like Facebook groups. in the I 1800s. I have drawn a lot of parallels between hmm. this age and the Walter League and our situation hmm. now with Facebook and Facebook groups and hmm. social networking. There's a lot of Fascinating. parallels. Mm-hmm, exactly. So German Lutherans who were at this point pretty fresh off the boat weren't going to be left out of this movement. A young men's group organized in Trinity Lutheran in St. Louis in 1848 to help financially support one of the seminary students from that church who was in need. And that was actually the first young people's group for Lutherans in the United States. And after this, more and more German Lutheran churches started creating their own groups. And by 1856, Walther himself invited young people to join the Evangelical Lutheran Youth Society for Missouri, Ohio, and other states. You put that on a badge and Mm. pin it on your shirt. (laughs) But it only lasted about a year. However, that was the precursor for the movement that would become the Walther League. And just a, a teeny bit, you got you got to set the background for this; otherwise, things don't make sense later. A teeny <laughs> bit of church organization history as well. The small conservative German synods in the United States at this time, including Missouri, made up the Synodical Conference, which was one of the large groups established to have some organization among all of these small Lutheran church bodies that were being created at this time. The other two were the General Synod, which was mostly East Coast and English-speaking, and languages of big deal at this time period. Hmm. And the General Council, which was kind of in the middle of language and doctrinal issues. And the General Council actually came up in one of the Hymnsing episodes. We talked about one of their seminaries in Gettysburg or something. Mm -hmm. So the General Council and General Synod were also creating young people's groups at this time. And they were kind of in relation with each other and kind of really not. And also other Protestant bodies in the United States were creating their own groups as well. So this was was just a thing across Mm. American culture. A lot of pastors at this time, they weren't really on that that train of letting young people organize They didn't think it was a really great idea. In general, they were like, well, these groups are going to disturb congregational harmony. They're going to disrupt the German Lutheran order of Christian education in the church. Ouch. It would be too secular a practice when they were still new to the country. And these societies were going to promote worldly things rather than things of God. You know, stuff like smoking and drinking and playing pool and... (gasps) Dancing, they were they were very against dancing hmm. for a long time, Oof. and actually, those pastors weren't all that wrong in the end. But anyway. yeah, the polka,
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't know about the polka. Okay, yes, maybe even the polka.
2: Squirt,
0: square dancing oh, wow. may have been okay. <laughs> Mm. Um, so, despite all of this, a society started at First Trinity Evangelical Lutheran Church in Buffalo, New York mm. in 1875, and this is where the Walther League would be born. So, the pastor at this church was the same pastor who was helped by the society that Walther had formed in St. Louis. So, he was all in since he was actually a recipient of the nice. aid of one of these
2: groups. Nice.
0: Most often, these societies were for men only because society was only men and women stayed in the house. Mm. But the Walther League was uh, allowing women to be involved in society activities from the very beginning, which was very countercultural.
3: Uh, and that's really why they needed to have a stance on dancing. Yep. If it had been only men, there it wouldn't would be have no mattered. Dancing.
0: Yep. But they they were allowing women, and okay. this this allowing women or not allowing women was going to be a, a whole thing for a while. This was also the time of the women's suffrage movement in the oh, U.S., so there was a yeah. lot of cultural conversation happening about the role of women in public in the public sphere. So societies were popping up all around Buffalo and they sent letters to all of the synodical conference churches to join together, but it was a very, very slow process. So they decided just to collaborate close to home in Buffalo and create their own little group. So they did that in 1892 and adopted the the wonderfully succinct name of the General Organization of Lutheran Young People's Societies of the Synodical Conference. But that was, of course, in German. I'm not going to butcher the German on that one. These
3: sound like some <laughs> of the hymnal names you're always right? throwing out there. I they, thought like the same thing. they like then. a long name back then. like a long name. It's a
0: very descriptive name. Yeah. Yes. Yep. So that was the beginning. The first publication of their newspaper, Der Freisbote, which means the Society Messenger, was published oh. in June 18...
3: God, it was the friend boat <laughs> 92
2: the friend boat <laughs> der Friedein's boat where the there will conference. be no dancing ever yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the first conference of this very long named society was held on may 20th 1893 at trinity lutheran church in buffalo and 16 delegates from 12 societies from across the synodical conference came together and their mission was primarily to keep the youth in the Evangelical Lutheran Church. They wanted these youth to pull together and, and help society. And they would also support a common publication paper, which ended up being De Frein's Boat. So that name was way too long to stay around for very long. So two years, or actually the next year, at uh, the 1894 convention in Fort Wayne, they voted to have a new name, Die Valtaliga. So Mm. this is where the Walther League comes in. Nice. That was a really good switch.
2: That's a good move. Branding, spot on. Yes. Mm
0: -hmm. Yes. By the end of 1899, they had 50 societies from across the country. And choosing the German name actually distinguished them from the other young people's societies of this time, like the Luther Leagues of the English-speaking churches. And that divide would stay for many, many, many years because of that division of language they also drew up a constitution and that solidified the place of walter Leeds <laughs> in the congregation they had to have a constitution
2: i love victorian young people so much <laughs> because that was they're like we're gonna sit around and write long poems and draw up constitutions for our societies it's just <laughs> yes. like this I, was what they did yeah. for fun yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's true but that, con-
0: <laughs> that Constitution solidified them as part of congregations instead of like separate entities um, that was maybe to allay some of those fears of pastors who thought they were going to start dividing the congregations, but they wanted to be part of these congregations that w- they were where they were being formed. So these regular Walter League meetings would, of course, have their business time as any society meeting, but they also had fun. And that fun created some controversy from the very beginning all the way to the very end of the league. Pastors were, don't have
2: fun? What?
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> some I couldn't include the stories because I would just be here for five hours, but some of these stories are for like... For peanut hunts, they would like walk around a house and search for peanuts for fun.
1: Peanut hunts, <laughs> this was a thing, anyways. Apparently, hashtag <laughs> normalized peanut hunts. But it was scandalous
0: because you would be in the same room by yourselves with a boy. <gasps> yeah. Oh,
1: this oh was Victorian gosh. age. Like you okay. could not be in the
0: same room as somebody else of the opposite sex by yourself without people thinking bad think things. Think of anything more
1: unsexy than a peanut <laughs> hunt.
3: <laughs>
1: uh-huh. <laughs> Yes. Interesting. Seriously, guys, read the book. It's oh great. My anyway. God. I'm going to have a peanut hunt in my house. God. Everyone's so, invited.
0: <laughs> pastors were very worried that these young people were going to imbibe too much in American culture and that that was going to pull them away from the church. They weren't Entirely wrong, but these pastors were would rather see these young people having debates and singing hmm. and having reading experiences and lectures rather than the games and dances and hmm. plays and comedies that they
2: actually
3: <laughs> ended up doing anyway. Um, they unstructured fun, they were not interested, they were not they interested the in this. structured fun, yes. And yes. I mean, and this
2: edifying was, fun lectures, yes. This was not Victorian penatons.
0: era. These were children of
2: immigrants. Mm-hmm. Mm. They were
0: new to the country still kind of, so this was all kind of a feeling out where the, how hunts. they were how they were fitting in. <laughs> Cabbage hunts, <laughs> not even once. <laughs> this was going to be a theme for the entirety of the Walter League existence, though. How much of American culture is too much to enjoy?
1: Mm. That,
2: you know, that's still we're still wrestling
0: with valid that debate. We are still yeah. wrestling
1: with that so much. Like I'm yep. listening to you spin life this tale of, of yeah, yeah, and I, I, yeah, I don't even think it's exclusive to Lutheranism. It shouldn't um, be, <laughs> but. Yeah, I can see a lot of parallels between the church, the, the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod, as it is today, and some of that stuff that was going on last. Oh yes, hundred years or so. The
0: times change, but our struggles kind of don't ever change. Neither. Yeah, imagine that. Hmm. Mm. Hmm. So Der boat would also have a long history in the Walther League as the communication glue that held all of these societies together. This is pre-internet. So the, Der boat was essentially their Facebook group, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> to put it in very modern terms. I mean, this is where they got all of their information. They had their marriage columns and all of their their society activity write-ups and, and all of this stuff that would go into this publication. Mm-hmm. And at this point, it was still all in German as well. It was mostly for education and history and this good Lutheran literature for young people to read because their parents wanted them to have good German things to read, not this English garbage that was going to take them away from the church. But they were very interested in keeping the young people into their German language and German heritage, and the League made that a priority. The League was fantastic in these early days at raising up leaders, and many of them were actually women. About a third of societies at this time were allowing women to be full members, and many of them had women in leadership roles, which caused a lot of disagreement over whether or not they should be leading or even in membership. Women's suffrage was a big thing. In American culture at this time in the late 1800s, and the league uh, was going to have to face it head on. This Victorian gender ideology of separate spheres for separate genders was all over American culture. The idea that that women worked and men kept the home. But what would this mean for you mean men worked, men, and, women men men worked and women kept the home?
1: I
3: was like, I whoa, no. was like, oh. <laughs> Sorry. whoa, Sorry. controversial. Take two. <laughs> I'm just going to leave that there. <laughs> <laughs> Outtakes that should never be aired. MP3.
0: Men worked, and did I really say that backwards? You yeah. Did wow. <laughs> men worked, women kept the home. Man,
1: <laughs> it's good, homie. Keep going. In
0: 1896, uh, this question was raised at convention about whether women should be in membership, even though they already had been. They tabled it at that convention because they they argued about it and couldn't figure it out. And so three years later, in 1899, they resolved to send a letter to Concordia Seminary faculty to ask for advice about this quote-unquote ladies' question. So you can imagine probably what the response was. The seminary faculty were not on board with women voting in the league. Hmm. They implied that if leaguers continued to allow women to hold offices and speak at conventions, then maybe the league didn't belong to the church. They were not in favor of women's suffrage or the presence of women at conventions, which would have gone against the Victorian propriety of the day. And they suggested that men and women do good work, but in their own spheres. And really, at the end of the day, they were pretty meh about the whole idea of the League in general. So that was the advice they got. I don't Mm -hmm. know how I feel about that. (laughs) Go on, I'll keep mulling it over. Okay. Mm-hmm. The the league didn't abide by that advice, which was probably pretty risky at this point to be associated with the synodical conference, but not really listening to the advice of, of the seminary faculty. At the 1900 convention, women gained the right to vote at convention, which was a full 20 years before they'd be able to vote for president of the United States. So the League was very progressive. It's very interesting. They wanted to keep their German identity and keep that tie to their German heritage. But at at the same time, they were, through their entire history, very progressive with the issues they were confronting and and all of these things that that these young people were doing together. So it's this very interesting paradox going on. The League was pulling together to support ministries of the time and to give each other mutual support. And these early years of the League were especially busy as they were very concerned about meeting all the needs of people around them and confronting all of these issues of the day. Some of the societies wanted to unite with others in geographical locations for more unity, since in some areas of the country there weren't a lot of synodical conference churches. Mm. But language was an issue. Other societies were already English-speaking but die Walter Liga was bound to their German heritage. Because of American cultural pressure, though, English was beginning to infiltrate the Vereinsport. They got an English corner for the English speaking people. This mm-hmm. language question was actually starting to replace the ladies question as the talking point of the time since that one had been answered by themselves. So the Welfare League was primarily in urban areas. Uh, these cities were really blooming at this time in American history. So uh, young people in these major cities were were well aware of the societal issues going on, like poverty and hunger, disease, and these horrible living conditions for a lot of people. And maybe you're familiar with the Jane Addams Hall House yes. in Chicago that had opened in 1889 to provide for some of these needs for people in the city. And uh, the leaguers saw this model and they were really interested in opening their own settlement houses off of this idea. So in 1901, the hospice program for the Walther League was born and it was a hugely successful program over several decades. Young people were able to travel city to city and stay in a home for Lutheran young people run by Lutheran young people. So their needs would be met within their league community and that would help keep them away from the temptations of the world. So they would be they would have these. It was it was like the Airbnb for Lutherans run by Lutherans at the turn of the century. You'd be able to travel city to city and stay in these homes or even go for for a few months at a time and kind of live in one for a while, which is I think this is super cool. By 1919, there were one hundred and three hospice secretaries and at least half of which were women. So this was all over the country that these were running. And they were running really, really strong and doing really well until the Depression, when they kind of fell off the edge, sadly. Another issue that leaguers wanted to confront was tuberculosis or Hmm. consumption, which was a real threat to young people at the turn of the century. We don't really think about it much anymore. I think you still get your TB test when you go to the doctor. I don't know. I remember getting
1: a TB test when I was a kid. It depends on the situation. Like... You can. If you're living, sometimes you in need a quarters.
0: You don't. Yeah. Yeah. I remember for, oh, for my school physicals. Yeah. You have to get yeah. one. You get your it's, little TB test on your own. It's still arm. out there. Yeah. I have mm-hmm. Not mm-hmm. Cured it. Right. Like, right.
3: Or eliminated it.
0: Mm-hmm. In 1905, over 1 million people across the world died from TB. Yikes. Which was that's a lot of people. There was no cure, no prevention. And the best treatment was outside fresh air, good food, and rest. So a lot of people would migrate to places like Colorado for the very healthy air. So leaguers decided to create their own TB sanatorium in Colorado for tuberculosis sufferers. And Hmm. the Evangelical Lutheran Sanatorium in Wheat Ridge, Colorado, was built in 1905 on 20 acres of land. And they started with 15 tents for TB sufferers. And it grew from there. Hmm. Hundreds of patients were served by this project and it survived the depression and continued on until the 1940s when drug treatments were developed and the sanatoria weren't used much anymore. So Wheat Ridge had to wrestle for their identity at this time. And so in 1945, the Wheatridge Foundation was formed, where they would develop huh. these programs of, of medical social work in Lutheran populations in the US and Canada, beginning in Chicago, where they provided the first medical social worker for Cook County Hospital. I think it's really cool. Yeah, And this organization is actually still around, Mm -hmm. still going strong. They became Wheat Ridge Foundation, or they were Wheat Ridge Foundation, became Wheat Ridge Ministries, which became We Raise Foundation just a few years ago. This is a hugely lasting legacy that the Walther League had, and I had no idea it was started. I mean, I'm very familiar with We Raise Foundation's work. I have some friends that work there. I had no idea it was started by Walther League. Mm. Super cool. So, this sanatorium obviously needed funding. And one of those things, and I mention this only because it's still going on, and also selling stamps is just a cool thing. Um, <laughs> selling seals or stamps became a thing during the Civil War for a fundraising effort. And the League thought it would be a really cool idea to sell Christmas seals for the Wheat Ridge Sanatorium. Oh. So they began selling seals in 1910 and over the years it was hugely successful. They raised thousands upon thousands of dollars for the sanatorium and you can still get Christmas seals from We Raise Hmm. if you're on their mailing list. They'll send them to you. I just think that's a really cool thing. (laughs) So the league was doing all of this great work for society and it was also a place for them to kind of explore their American patriotism they created patriotic American songbooks. Like that was a whole thing for them. You can find them on like eBay and Etsy. Mm -hmm. If you look for Walter league songbooks, they exist anyway, this would be actually a very important thing for them. When world war one rolls around in 1914, between 1914 and America's entrance in 1917, many Lutherans, American Lutherans were pro German. We've talked about this before. Mm -hmm. German Lutherans in America were harassed for their heritage but these young Germans were really super pro-American because of this. And many of them were being drafted, too. So they were, these German heritage may be children of German immigrants, and they were fighting for America against Germany. German books were being banned and burned. Lutheran schools and churches were being torched. Pastors were being harassed. So this was a really hard time in, in German-American culture. During the war, though, the League raised $25,000, which is a lot of money in the early 1900s. Yes for the LCMS to support the military mm. and they distributed 400,000 pieces of literature to soldiers, including the Lutheran hymnal and prayer book for boys under the flag. And they mm. this their war effort was just huge at this mm. point, but they did have to give up their German language at this point in their uh. history. It just wasn't... It wasn't going to be a good thing for them to keep publishing their their publication in German. Uh, at one point during the war, they actually split publications and they printed a full English one to send over because they couldn't send a German publication. <laughs> to yeah, that's bad and, optics right in there. In Germany, that was not a good idea. So they split the publication first and had one in German, one in English. And then at some point they were like, this is this is dumb. We need to just sadly give up the German. So they ended up with a full, a fully English messenger in 1918. It was a hard shift for them, but it was this uh, this uh, one more step of assimilating into American culture. So I think my most favorite quote from this book yes. is, from the beginning, perhaps the most widespread hope and dream among leaguers was to find a Lutheran spouse. Yeah. <laughs> and I think this is At least in my personal experience, this is the most common story that I hear from people who are in the Walther League, that they found (laughs) their spouse in the league and they probably have some adorable story about how that happened. And there's a bazillion different versions of like they met on a train or they met at a conference or they met at a camp or all of these things. So a huge reason for young Lutherans to participate in Walther League from its inception was to find a spouse. And the Walther League was actually kind of branded the unofficial marriage bureau of the Synodical Conference <laughs> for mm-hmm. a very long time because of mm. this. And it lasted essentially until higher education took the place of meeting other young people at Walther League conventions. We all know now that you get your MRS degree at a Concordia. So we True. still do this.
3: That's absolutely right.
2: <laughs> Walther League is a little cheaper, though. I think we should. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it won't settle you with tens of thousands of dollars in debt. Right as the mother of teenagers myself i think that this is a bit of a gap now that the walther league yeah. is is no longer here uh, there is and looking at my own life and how being married to a godly lutheran man has just shaped the trajectory of mm-hmm. of my life and i want that for my kids and so yay walther league for having a lot you know created been the marriage bureau for the Synod <laughs> for all those years cuz that's pretty pretty <laughs> cool right. Yes.
0: So many stories about how people just serendipitously met. And like, if it weren't for the Walter League, I wouldn't be married to this wonderful person. It's it's all over the place. In 1919, they actually had to eliminate any age limit for membership because so many leaguers were marrying out of their societies because once you got married, you left the society And their numbers were shrinking so quickly because so many people were getting married. So they got rid of all of the age limits so that they could keep their numbers up in their societies. It was a whole thing. Literally didn't just
3: make it open to married couples? No. Okay.
0: Literally (laughs) thousands, thousands upon thousands of young people were married through these societies and conventions. Like this is a huge boon for the propagation of American Lutheranism. Why did they have to leave when they got married? Because they graduated. This was a young people's organization. So at some point, you were too old to be in it anyway.
3: You put away childish things. I don't know. I mean, peanut hunts
2: are really hard to do when you have toddlers.
1: Okay, that's true. You're right. I mean, yeah, yeah,
0: at this day and age in, in culture, when you got married the woman took care of the house, the men went to work. I mean, you had you had your roles of what you did after right. you got, like
3: it was... You moved into a new sphere. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Sphere a sphere of less the married, married one. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry.
0: <laughs> so this also meant that throughout the history of the League, as culture around dating and courtship and what that really means and how to do it properly, the messenger regularly fielded questions and articles about proper dating etiquette how to be in a relationship that was still faithful to your lutheran theology how to avoid temptation in relationships to kiss or not to kiss was a common question yes. <laughs> this is so cute through, through the 40s they had very strict prohibitions against anything that would cause any kind of carnal desire And even later, interfaith marriages would come up in issues of the messenger. And that caused some huge debate. Interesting. um, Because near the end of the Walther League, they, they started being okay with interfaith marriages and saying, well, it's okay. It doesn't really matter if you marry a Lutheran. And that was like... You wouldn't have even read that anywhere in the 1920s or 30s. Now, by interfaith,
2: are we talking like Missouri Synod versus Wisconsin Synod, or are we talking like Lutheran and Methodist or Lutheran and Jewish? Yeah, like Lutheran and Catholic or something. Ah, gotcha. Mm. Mm -hmm. By
0: 1920, the League finally received official recognition from the Synodical Conference. They had kind of refused to give them recognition officially, Until this point, for a variety of reasons. This was huge that they had official recognition from the Synodical Conference. They were finally, like, part of the team. With official status, they hired their first paid full-time executive secretary. So up to this point, everything was volunteer. Fancy. First full-time paid executive secretary, the Reverend Walter A. Meyer. Mm. Maybe a familiar name. Yeah. Whoa, I think uh-huh. I've heard of him. Yeah, yeah. So he himself actually got married as a result of the league to <laughs> from Indianapolis. Lol. So, <laughs> everybody got married in the league; it was a thing. Walter A. Meyer was only executive sec- secretary for two years, but he edited the Messenger until 1945. So he had a long legacy of influence over the content of of what leaguers would have been reading, which was a good thing and then ended up being a somewhat controversial thing in the 40s. But the 40s culture took a dive a bit. Anyway, the Roaring Twenties were a very interesting time. Culture was changing very rapidly in post-war America, and modernity was the hot topic. Mm. Uh, The League and Walter Meyer were concerned about staying true to their Lutheran doctrine, even... With all of these fancy new technologies and fashions and, and all of this stuff. So theological debates between fundamentalists and modernists were, were taking place. And that was that was a thing in the League. The sacredness of home and marriage were being debated within society. League leaders were very anti-flapper as the <laughs> outspoken, uninhibited woman in American life was seen as the opposite of a League woman and flappers were strictly prohibited from author league conventions victorian separate spheres were still very alive in league publications and warnings were given against new fashions and trends like wearing your socks without garters which was a thing or balloon pants for men they were like don't do that you might fall away from the church Hmm. It was a thing. Wow. Prohibition was also happening during this time. And that was very hard for German Lutherans to manage, Mm -hmm. uh, especially with a convention in Milwaukee during this time, which was brewing capital of America. (laughs) But these were all things that they had to deal with. They were also supporting a lot of mission work at this time at home and abroad. They were also getting involved with the racial discussions of the time, speaking out against the KKK. And they opened the first African-American Walther League Society in Springfield, Illinois, in 1922. And camping became a thing for the League. And this is another part of Walther League history I had no idea about. So many things. In 1922, Walter A. Meyer arranged for Mrs. Henry Starkey and her son Charles to give the Walther League 110 acres on the northeastern shore of Lake Michigan near arcadia michigan Uh oh camp arcadia y'all was started by the walther league i did not know that arcadia camp arcadia became the most famous leaguer camp and it was the primary training ground for league leaders it was super popular throughout the decades and although it was almost lost in 1968 because of a budget deficit the group concerned arcadians bought the camp from the walther league board of Trustees and began the Lutheran Camp Association, and they still run the camp today. I checked Hmm. their website. Camp Arcadia is a beautiful place, by the way. If you've never been there, you should totally just go to camp. Along with Camp Arcadia, between 1924 and 1926, Walther League camps started in Wisconsin, Arkansas, Ontario, Canada, Alabama, California, Colorado, Kansas, Minnesota, California, and Missouri. And many of those camps still exist today, and a lot of them are actually Naloma camps, which we've talked about. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. I had no idea that there was this this huge history of camping with the Walter League and so many of our camps were started by them. Cool parts of Walter League history. Another probably my favorite part of Walter League history because it's the reason why I have the job I do and why we're able to actually produce this podcast. Walter A. Meyer asked in the Messenger in 1923 Why not have a Lutheran broadcasting station? Whoa. It seems that the radio sermon is destined to play a somewhat important part in American life. He was not wrong. And so they started a radio station. The huh. Walther League assisted the Lutheran Layman's League to fund the project and the Lutheran Layman's League, which is the original LLL and the reason why people get kind of weirded out when we call ourselves the LLL because technically we're Oops. not the first. Yeah, <laughs> It was founded in 1917 to encourage adult laymen to take more of a role in funding projects of the LCMS. And so the board of control at Concordia Seminary, headed by the Reverend Richard Kreshmar, advocated for a new station at either the seminary or at Concordia Publishing House, both of which at this point were located in South City, St. Louis at this time, not at the seminary campus. And they resolved to bring... Sorry, not at the current seminary campus site. <laughs> um, they resolved to bring it to the Lutheran Layman's League for funding, and money did come from a few places, but at a critical stage in 1924, the Walther League contributed $7,000 for the completion of the station. Wow. Yep. KFUO Radio was founded, and the first broadcasts began on December 14, 1924. We are coming up on 100 years, y'all. This is super Yo! exciting. Wow. The station became known as the Gospel Voice And it was largely possible because of the efforts of the Walther League. So thanks in large part, Walther League.
1: Here we are now for this legacy right here. Well, (laughs) and
0: indirectly,
2: too, because we were talking about what happens when you get married and graduate from the Walther League, the Lutheran Layman's League. You know, that that group Mm -hmm. was was largely, I think, probably made up of Walther League alumni. And they had they had learned their trade when it comes to supporting ministry as young people and yep. that's 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 yeah. awesome yay super cool and
0: KFUO radio and the lutheran hour which was part of the starting of KFUO, are both still going very strong so that is a pretty amazing legacy so now we're into depression era time the league managed to survive the depression fairly well actually some things took a hit obviously this time in history was very hard for people to live through, a lot of a lot of hard times for people. Lutherans actually grew in number during this time, and the League uh, reorganized itself into two major focus areas, Christian service and Christian knowledge, and it kind of stayed that way pretty much until the end. There were 1,682 societies in 1930, and it grew to 2,322 by the end of the decade, so they were still growing quite drastically at this point. They were turning their attention to supporting Lutheran higher education, which was going to benefit young people quite a bit, but it was also one of those things that was going to lead to the end of the League and the, the end of, of the need for the League, really. They were involved in uh, the civilian conservation camps of FDR's New Deal, which was a, a thing at this point during the Depression. I've um, been to
3: one of those. Have you really? Yeah. yeah, there's some of them are still camps. Wow, I mm-hmm. did not know that. There's one in... I think in Indiana. Maybe huh. it was Illinois. But anyway. yeah. couple in cool. Michigan. I camped at one once. Yes.
0: Yeah. Uh-huh. I had no idea. Well, they were started during the New Deal. They were a big part of, of uh, the League. Uh, okay. The leaguers were involved heavily in them. Cool. It seems to fit their, yes, their brand. Yes, it does. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, it does. This was also something that started playing into the waning times for the League, though, because the government was starting to... To do some of the things for young people that the League had been doing, the government was now starting to do. So this was something else that was kind of starting to pull people away from the need to have this welfare League. During the Depression, the hospice program suffered the most, unfortunately. Young people didn't really need places to stay anymore. And higher education was becoming a a bigger focus. So a lot of people were going to colleges instead of traveling around or whatever. By 1940, all but six of the hospices were closed and all of the committees were disbanded. So that kind of spelled the end for the hospice program of the league. Kind of sad. I still think it's a super cool part of their history, though. (laughs) And a a quick note about Lutheran higher education also at this point in history. As we know, because some of us are products of this Lutheran education system, (laughs) the LCMS established Concordia's as teacher in pastor training schools during the American college boom in the mid to late 19th century, in River Forest in 1864, Watertown, no. Wisconsin in 1865, Bronxville, New York in 1861, and St. Paul, Minnesota in 1893, the original four. But there was no college for regular laity. So, mm. what is now Valparaiso University came up for sale in 1925. It had this whole like falling apart because their enrollment just kind of died after World War One. Mm. So, Lutherans came together and bought the university for 176 thousand dollars. Like, you can buy a house for that. You can yeah. barely buy a house yeah. for that right <laughs> now.
2: <laughs> you can't buy anything for that in Connecticut. Nope. <laughs>
1: Maybe a room.
2: (laughs) And the leaguers adopted Valpo as their
0: university. So within three years, the league boosted the Lutheran population at this university from 0% to 40%. Wow. It was the first American Lutheran university for young people to go to to train for regular like secular positions in life. You could go there and do whatever you wanted. This was a big deal for Lutheran young people. And it was a huge hit among these Lutheran families who wanted to send their kids to a Lutheran higher education, even if they didn't want to be pastors or teachers. It also was one of those things that started meeting the needs of young people in the same way that Walther League was. And although the League actually used Valpo for a a huge hub for a lot of Lutheran activities and Lutheran programs for young people, it also started to replace the League a bit for these young people. Okay, back to American history. We all know what happened in the world in the late 30s. Hitler and the National Socialist Party were coming to power in Germany, and again, German-American German-American Lutherans had to weigh their German heritage and their patriotism to America. And at first, a lot of Lutherans, including Walter A. Meyer, were pro-German. They didn't really believe the stories coming out of Germany of the atrocities against the Jews. And this is partly because a lot or most of the anti-German propaganda during World War One had proven false. So they kind of just assumed that these stories were also false. Mm. Um, unfortunately, they weren't. Hitler was not, in fact, returning Germany to the god of their forefathers, as much as they were hoping that he was totally not the case. It was so much worse. League publications did finally—they were neutral for a while— but they finally condemned Hitler and the Nazis in 1938. Mm. And then, of course, Germany invades Poland, Pearl Harbor happens in 1941. And then the League threw themselves into war work again, supporting troops with huge letter writing campaigns. They kept honor rolls of those who were killed in action, they raised a lot of money, and they sent care packages. An estimated 25,000 Wilther Leaguers were in the armed forces by May 1944. Wow. And the messenger would print their stories regularly. And one of these stories was from First Lieutenant Howard Bullman from Dundee, Illinois, and it was printed in the messenger, and it was read over the air on NBC, which I think was really cool. He survived a plane crash in the Battle of Guadalcanal, and then he was rescued by locals, and then he was picked up by the Navy, and he finally made it out alive. And he says that he would sing a mighty fortress and recited Psalm 23 and like parts of liturgy whenever he was going into battle, which I think is such Mm. a cool thing. So at this point in the league, they were also doing a fundraising campaign during the war. They managed to raise $100,000 to build a beautiful new headquarters just north of the Loop in downtown Chicago, which Mm. I think is really cool. Yes. The building, as far as I know, is still there. It's not... We don't own it anymore as the Lutheran Church. But as far as I know, it's still there. It was dedicated on September 20th, 1942. And it was quite the achievement. Like modern architecture, beautiful stained glass windows, very efficient office layout system. I mean, this is like German efficiency to the max. Yep. Very cool stuff. Agree. Yes. And societies during this time grew to 3,307 in 1949. So they were still just booming. Lutheran service volunteer schools were initiated in 1944. They grew immensely over the next decade. So these were kind of the precursor of what we know as servant events in youth ministry. These groups of young people would go serve in underserved areas, doing Bible studies, fixing up buildings, and learning how to serve their neighbors. So that legacy is still around today with our youth ministry. This decade also saw the beginning of the real downfall of the League. It ended the 1940s $4,000 in debt, which I think was the first time it it had ended a decade that far in debt. The GI Mm. Bill was part of this. It encouraged young people to go to college, which is great, but the League was struggling to connect these uh, returning servicemen with societies as there was this disconnect between what these veterans needed and what the League could offer. Hmm. And Walter A. Meyer resigned as editor of The Messenger in 1945 because of irreconcilable differences about his editorial style and the increase in subscription rate, like more money, and his criticism of communism in Russia because now we're into Cold, Cold War. War era. Oh my gosh. So, This was still a hard time for people to be kind of reconciling all these things that were happening. And also at this point, the Board for Young People's work of the Missouri Synod came on the scene to subsidize the league because they needed money. Mm. Um, This board was founded in 1920, but it was mostly just advertising the league. But in 1941 and onward, its influence really grew as these youth committees on the board operated in parallel to youth district officers. And more and more of this young people's work was pulled into the board for the Missouri Synod it was a very interesting relationship. The system worked fairly well for a while, but synodical bureaucracy was growing and the league budget was more and more tied up to the synod. And so the league kind of was pulled into theological disputes in the synod, one of which was unionism, a growing trend in American Lutheranism, Yeah, because we're getting to the 60s. Oh, yeah. Here we go. (laughs) The Messenger started covering more and more contemporary social issues with the new editors after Walter A. Meyer. They were covering things like racism and all of the labor disputes that were happening in the 50s did not shy away from controversial cultural topics, and this was going to cause major problems for them uh, within the next 20 years. Throughout the 50s, culture was offering all of these distractions of pursuing affluence and buying into pop culture, and all of these things really started to dismantle mm. uh, the organization. Elvis. It was, <clears throat> and it wasn't really just the league, though. I mean, all of American culture was kind of experiencing this, this shaking up of, of all of these things. So. <laughs> Elvis. Maybe on purpose.
1: Uh, The
0: League really was starting to have major problems. It ran a deficit every year, but one of the 1950s. The Messenger couldn't keep subscribers. When a letter was sent to congregations in 1951 asking why they weren't supporting the League, these congregations responded in mass that the League was becoming too worldly and it was taking these young people away from the church and pulling them into secular culture. So they were assimilating a little bit too. Uh, well, the League had become so good at assimilating the young German Lutherans into American culture that it was actually now becoming their downfall. That um, It was assimilating
2: young Lutherans into secular culture.
3: Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, huh.
0: And then we get to the 60s, and the 60s were just kind of a hot mess. Um, culture was a hot mess. Church politics and relations became... Hot mess. Uh, The League became a hot mess. What could you
1: possibly mean?
0: (laughs) Unfortunately, it's kind of a sad part of the story. American culture was incredibly violent during the 60s. Mm. Assassinations and race riots were happening all over the country. The Vietnam War protests Mm. infiltrated young people's societies, and the sexual revolution was in full swing. And the League wasn't immune to any of this, unfortunately. And the Leaguers wanted unity among American churches. And so now we get this history that that some of us probably know fairly well. The American, all of these ALC LCA acronyms, mm. ALC American Lutheran Church was formed in 1961, and the Lutheran Church in America formed in 1962. And then in 1963, after Lutheran college students were meeting at Valpo about unity among young people's groups, the leagues Walter League Messenger was replaced with an inter-Lutheran journal called Arena. So this. <sighs> Communication glue that had held the Walther League together since uh, 1893 was replaced by an intra Lutheran publication. Yes. Oh. So after 71 years, the League gave up their own publication in an effort to bring Lutheran youth together. And you have to think that their intentions were good, that yeah. they wanted to work together better, but it was not going to end yeah. well, unfortunately. And then in 1967 the publication Edge replaced the publication Arena. I love how like Edge? nondescript these names uh-huh. are. <laughs> Edge. Edge replaced ARENA, and it was for LCMS, LCA, and ALC alphabet soup youth. (laughs) Alphabet soup youth. (laughs) So now 95% of Lutheran youth in the U.S. had a common publication, which could have been a good thing. It ended up only lasting two years, though. Can't imagine Mm. why. Yeah. The League was really shrinking significantly at this point. Uh, There was a lack of purpose, a lack of discipleship, poor organization, American culture was focused on like high school activities and public activities. And there was all this new television. Television was a big thing. All of this violence was happening in American culture and playing society games like peanut hunt, <laughs> not really attractive to young people anymore. But what it was wrong
2: with young people today. <laughs> I'm so I'm enchanted
0: by it. Like,
1: why wouldn't you want to do that?
0: It was actually almost less of the theological debates, though, and this unionism that caused the end of the League and actually more of the conflict over American culture, especially over civil rights that caused the end of the League, which I think is really interesting. Oh,
2: did not see that plot twist coming.
0: No. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that the the unionism and, uh, was not uh, making a good impression on LCMS leadership. They were already kind of, what are you guys doing over a lot of this? But the League was trying to be very progressive and relevant in their publications and selections for speakers and entertainment for their massive conventions. And eventually these are the things that brought significant reprimand from the LCMS in convention they were bringing in a lot of secular speakers a lot of controversial people over conversations about race Pete Seeger was one of these people that caused a (laughs) huge thing (laughs) they had Ann Landers folk singer like yeah Ann Landers a major folk
3: protest singer and
0: Pete Seeger yeah I mean this is the age of a Vietnam War protesting Uh yeah it was whole thing were, those two were at one of them, and there was a huge blow up uh, with LCMS
2: leadership. Over and whether they Landers should be there. at a Walther League convention. Yes. Whoa. Yes.
0: So it was actually their their progressive nature, and their wanting to bring in all of these people to talk about progressive cultural issues that, re- oh. that really actually caused a lot of this downfall. And writing in these publications about all of these things as well. And eventually, huge reprimand from the LCMS. And the LCMS was going to take over official youth work for the LCMS by 1967. And that was the last year for official Walter League conventions. Huh. So the league Dang. reorganized itself at this point as an independent, youth-led, issue-oriented ministry in 1968. And it was really small, didn't really have any support from the LCMS. Was it, after, just, it was an independent Lutheran deal? After 1968, yeah. Okay. The LCMS kind of took over their own youth ministry at this point. The League was mostly independent. They didn't have any support from the LCMS after 1971. And that same year, their beautiful, modern headquarters in Chicago was sold to the Salvation Army, sadly. Huh. And the League officially closed their last office in March, 1977. And so they had a board of trustees after that point that kind of doled out the funds for colleges and programming for youth. But that is all since completely disbanded. So the first LCMS youth gathering was in 1980. We Mm. still have those every three years. As the LCMS convention in 1977 recommended a separate youth gathering for LCMS youth. And we've had those every three years. Since 1980. And somehow I've never
1: been to one.
0: I went to the one in Minneapolis in 2019. Pre-pandemic. And I'm going to Houston next year. I'm jelly.
1: They're really fun. That's what I hear.
0: So in conclusion, the League was an amazing formative experience for Lutheran youth over 75 years. It did so many good things for our Lutheran cultural history. So many things to form these young people into really productive members of society, to really what, show the, the love of Christ to the people around them, to be in community with other Lutherans. So many great things. So many marriages and Lutheran babies uh, mm. because of the Heck Walter yeah. League, which is, I mean, that's really great too. But all of this legacy that happened because these, these young people wanted to form the society in the late 1800s and to work together as Lutheran people, I think that's really cool. Mm -hmm. And even though it came to an interesting end, but that interesting end happened at a point in American history which was also uh just kind of wonky and weird. Yeah. So, it's kind of sad that it ended, but this legacy of the Walther League is a really yeah. really incredible one for the strengthening of our Lutheran ancestors and I think that spirit, like we were talking about right at the beginning, that spirit of community, I think is still really alive today yeah. in just in different ways in our own culture.
1: Right. Well, and I think, you know, you look at the Walther League sort of dissolving but then like what rises in its place like for me Mm -hmm. in regards to this whole debate about lutherans and this is a criticism that i have (laughs) i'm just i'm not saying that this is fact because maybe i'm just naive entirely possible (laughs) there seems to be this ongoing debate slash concern with lutherans sort of acquiescing to the culture Mm-hmm. and we want to demonize and criticize secular things. And maybe they rightfully so should be. I, I'm i not even going to bring up any hot topics as of right now, because <laughs> I'm sure you all know what they are. <laughs> but I just, you look at something like the Walther League, and you see sort of its longevity, and like you were saying, the legacy that it left. Mm-hmm. And it didn't make it through the, that really hot cultural time, but... God's word is still present he's still working Mm -hmm. he's making good things happen from from the disillusion of organizations and so when it comes to sort of being in the world but not of it like yes we very much can be concerned about that acquiescence but at the same time like we need to hold fast to the fact that God still is in control of everything and he's going to do what he's going to do. And we need to just hold fast to that. Yeah. And that was my soapbox. (laughs) I'm stepping down now. What I take away
2: from this story is, and it's a really good one for me to hear at this stage in my life, is a reminder that faithful, zealous Christian young people are powerful and they can do Mm -hmm. a lot more than we would expect or give them credit for. Correct. That, you know, don't downplay what they're capable of because it's amazing. Mm-hmm. KFUO, Camp Arcadia, Wheat Ridge Ministry, uh, sorry, We Raise Foundation. <laughs> I still call them Wheat Ridge. <laughs> I
1: know. Um, <laughs> I will forever also.
2: <laughs> and so many other things, not to mention all the, all the families that were, mm-hmm. you know, begun and nurtured because of some young people said, we should do something together. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And that is just so cool and so inspiring and such a powerful, potent reminder to me as the mother of young people,
1: yep.
2: you know, acknowledge how much they have to offer the world. Girl, you're raising the young.
1: future of the church. You are raising the future <laughs> of the church. It's wonderful and really scary. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'm excited for one. But yes. they're, they're such cool people. I mean, no. I they'll do good things. I know they will. And the Walter League sort of reminds me of how many good things Lutheran young people have done in the past.
3: I think with what you were talking about, as far as that young people have great value to offer as well, I think that's true. And there's also the the aspect of the coming together mm. and that one or two people alone thinking of stuff, you can absolutely have stuff to offer. But when you're able to get together with other people you get that added energy and creativity Mm -hmm. and that's I feel like that's also that's like the power of the body of Christ that's why we that's why we meet together and Mm -hmm. we don't just do things individually
1: yeah I just had a crazy idea let's bring back the Walther League you guys yes I'll do it I volunteer as tribute you're married (laughs) Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think any of us are eligible anymore. You make a valid point. We're not We're not young enough. <laughs> so let's get some Gen Z folks, if you're listening, start the Walter League. I will provide the seed venture capital and whatever. the peanuts. And the, and the peanuts. peanuts. <laughs> The inaugural Although, Peanut Hunt. I should probably
2: point out that the Walther League may still be trademarked, so you may have to start the something oh. else League.
1: Make it's it the, the Walther League 2 <laughs> Unfinished <laughs> business. The friend boat. <laughs> the friend boat.
0: Oh well, ladies. I know some of you already shared your stories, but we'd love to hear more stories about your Walter League experiences or stories you've heard from your parents or grandparents or great-grandparents.
1: Give us some meet-cute stories. Let's
0: go! Yes! I want to know how everyone met. We'd love to hear those. You can share them in our Facebook group, the Lutheran Ladies Lounge. You can also share them on Instagram and tag us. We're on Instagram at Lutheran Ladies Lounge. You can find all of our podcasts at kfuo.org slash Lutheran Ladies Lounge or on our KFUO radio app available in either app store or on your favorite podcasting app. You're listening to the Lutheran Ladies Lounge podcast. I'm Sarah.
1: I'm Aaron. I'm going to go home and write some Walther League fan fiction. Yes. <laughs> and I'm
2: Rachel.
0: KFUO Radio and the Lutheran Ladies' Lounge podcast are underwritten in part by Ad Crucem. Visit them online at adcrucem.com. Views and opinions expressed on the Lutheran Ladies' Lounge podcast may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO Radio, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. The Lutheran Ladies' Lounge is produced by KFUO Radio and available at kfuo.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Join our community on Facebook in the Lutheran Ladies' Lounge.
2: Okay, I see a young lady walking up the path here, so unless she walks in right in the middle of your sentence. Ding dong,
1: ding dong. No,
2: ding dong. She saw the sign. I don't know if she can open the door, though. Let me grab it. (laughs) You can take your mask off (laughs) now. They all say hello.
1: Hi, cute girl. Hello, I'm. Are you, yeah, are you ready for school to be over for a minute? Yes. Good. Me too. I'm ready to kayak down a river of gravy on a hill of mashed potatoes. What about you? I'm <laughs> um, not ready for that. I am ready having a Thanksgiving meal made by my mom, though. Oh! The best. <laughs> yes! Okay. Nice. Thanks. She's the cutest and I can't handle it. Time in. Okay.
3: <laughs> Speaking of <laughs> young people she's raising. Uh. She came skipping down the hall. She knew exactly what she was doing.
1: Exactly. She's like, I'm gonna go interrupt this podcast oh recording goodness. because I'm cute and I know I can. Okay, I'm skipping back. I'll be back in five <laughs> seconds to skip down the hall again and bother you, Mom. And knock on you to get your attention. Oh, she
2: got exactly what she wanted. Do you know what she had oh, me? Oh, fruit Mama, snacks? Mama, what can I have for a snack?
1: Yes. <laughs>
2: and I said, whatever you want, so long as you eat it upstairs quietly.
1: <laughs> Speaking of acquiescing to the culture. Yeah. I love her
2: so okay. much.